Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hey, Gabby, you can call the kids. I need some advice. All right, that looks great, Gabby. Let's make those legs longer. So, gee, how's it going with the kids? Uh-huh. Not feeling trained. Come here. More grass in there. Let it go. What's your plan? Hi everyone and welcome to the show. My guest today is Talitha Phillips. She is the CEO of Clarice Health for about 19 years. And what I can say about her is if you're talking about a hero, a social impact hero, here we are. And in a day and age where I feel like you know, kind of the shinier or the louder someone or a situation is, the more attention they get. But when you want to talk about boots on the ground and people getting stuff done and helping others, this is what Clarice Health is doing. And this is what Talitha and people like Talitha are doing. And, you know, I think what really was inspiring for me about this conversation is one of their missions is is to go in and help and serve underserved communities. It initially started more in women's health, but now they're, you know, it's sort of like, hey, we're going into these places that one, either people can't leave and get help or they're distrusting of medical care or, you know, whatever the number of reasons are. And, and they're saying, okay, well, you can't get into us. Great, we're gonna create a mobile unit. And, and just for me, what it was is some things are so overwhelming you know, what people are, are navigating or their lack of resources. And you think, oh, I, I mean, this is just too hard to make an impact. And then you see a person like Talitha who systematically and calmly gets up each day, regardless, I think, of how tough it might be in certain days and goes, okay, how can we make a difference? How can we help someone? And I just, I really enjoyed not only meeting her, but She's just a really important reminder and to shed light on people like her is not only inspiring, but it is a kick in the pants for all of us to be like, hey, we can all do something. And the other part of this story is that she shares how one of the most traumatic things that ever happened to her got her in the situation to be where she is right now. And it's that key reminder that sometimes the worst stuff that happens in our lives is the thing that puts us into these you know, higher callings. So I am so grateful she came on. I'm grateful that they're doing the work that they're doing and I really hope you enjoy. Talitha Phillips, thank you so much for coming to my house and um, for joining me today. We were just talking about how you went to university up the road at Pepperdine. So you grew up in, in Europe. Yes. Where were you in Europe? Well, I was actually born here, interestingly, in California. And then my parents, when I was a few months old, moved to Texas. And then we ended up in, I know, random. And then we ended up in Holland for several years and then Germany. 
until I was almost 13. And then we moved from Germany to Tulsa, Oklahoma, which... How was that culture shock? (laughs) Probably the most jarring thing you could ever do to a 13-year-old. But um, yeah, so it went from, you know, very European lifestyle. I went to a German school. Oh, wow. And then right into... You were very punctual, so... Well, yeah, yeah, the German... (laughs) They trained me well. Yeah. It stuck with me in a lot of ways in my life. Yes, very much. I want to understand, at least like when you were little, you know, did you sort of naturally have uh, an interest? Do you have, are you interested in science? Are, were you finding yourself, I know that you had, did you have three brothers, right? So were you naturally empathetic? Like how, because I want to get into what you're doing now, because I think it's so powerful and important. Um, and, and actually, I think it's an indication of some of the stuff we're going to need to, to do in the future as far as healthcare, medical care. But maybe you could just bring us to how, you know, you, your experience that maybe got you here. Yeah, it's a very sort of unconventional road, um, to say the least. But I would say as a kid, so I'm the oldest. I have three younger brothers. Mm. And my parents were not in the military. My dad worked with the military, but did more service-oriented projects. And so we were over there and lived with lots of different families, and everyone had little children, and I was one of the oldest. So I kind of grew up watching all these kids, babysitting. I was the built-in babysitter at seven, Mm. I mean, seven, eight, nine. And so I remember thinking, I was probably nine years old, and I remember walking to school one day in, in Germany, and I said, when I'm older, I'm gonna have this big house, and I'm gonna have all these pregnant women that live there and we're just going to take care of them. And for some reason I knew at that young age that there were women that had babies that didn't have support mm. and that maybe didn't have housing. And so that little seed was sort of planted and then flash forward I think I'd forgotten about that and went to Pepperdine had three brothers. I had no interest in women's health at all. I didn't even have interest in any women's issues. I had brothers and I was in sports and I was a trainer and, you know, most of my friends were guys at that time. So my road here is, was very, very different. I didn't um, set out to do what I'm doing, but mm-hmm. now looking back, I can see all these different, and I don't know how exactly we'll get into this, but, you know, I wear all these different hats, but all of them sort of have this strain of caring for women and children and families. And looking back, I realized, I I think that was a part of me as a kid. I just didn't realize it until I was much older and sort of. What did you study when you went to Pepperdine? Started off international business and quickly realized I was supposed to take econ and international business. And I was like, oh, no, this is a mistake. This is not me and switch to organizational communication. What is that? Just sounds really good. Yeah. I mean, I know what communication is, but what's organizational communication? It's sort of study. Well, I know it's been a long time since I was in college, so I'm not even sure I remember, but a lot of it was um, studying sort of behavioral communication, how teams function, Mm. management, consulting. We did a lot of teamwork, which was a little bit ahead of trend Mm -hmm. back then. Um, I graduated in 2000. So, you know, at that time it wasn't, you know, the way the world is now where I feel like everything you do is in teams. At that time, the organizational communication fields really looked at how the dynamics of communication, styles, working together, management. And so that is also now a part of the nonprofit world. Right. So let's jump right into 
Now, are we calling it Claris Health or Clarice? Claris. Right. I just want to, I don't want to, you know, there's nothing worse than like, you're like, that's nice. That whole one hour, you said yeah. that wrong. <laughs> yeah. um, so Claris Health, uh, it started in 1976-ish, mm-hmm. right? And you've been on board for 19 years, since 2001 yes. as the CEO. Yes. And maybe you can just explain exactly what it is that um, Claris does. Yeah, so probably the easiest way to describe it is the word Claris means clarity. Mm-hmm. And so we're all about bringing clarity to what can often feel like very confusing or dark situations and walking alongside lo- mostly women, although we've really expanded in the last several years and realizing especially um, women in pregnancy situations that they need the support of others. And so women and families and children, and we so we do medical care, we do mental health services, we provide um, support and just a network of other community organizations working together. So mm-hmm. our goal is to be there for individuals before, during, and after a pregnancy or a sexual health choice and walking along the road with them through that. Um, But when I first learned about Claris, they were much smaller. They were not a medical organization. And I was a Pepperdine student, actually. And I had, when I was 19, I found out I was pregnant. Very unexpected, um, very devastating, as you can imagine. And um, in made a few phone calls. I remember calling Pepperdine saying, what would happen if a student was pregnant? What, oh, and where what, would they mean, live or what would happen to their You mean because it's scholarship? a Christian school or because it's just a university in general with student housing and such or a combination? Um, maybe, probably a combination. I think the biggest thing for me was I had never seen anyone pregnant on campus. And, you know, I was there, I guess it was the summer after my freshman year. So in a full year, I never saw that. I wondered what would happen to my scholarship because I was on an academic scholarship and what if I had to take time off and housing at the time I was living on campus. And so I remember calling the university and I called a couple places, but just didn't find anyone that was very helpful or supportive in that. And I ended up having an abortion my summer after my freshman year and then thought, okay, I'm going to make that decision to bury you, that. Had you talked to your parent? Did you talk to your mom? Or, I or didn't. Did you, did you take this all on your own? I took it all on my own. Was terrified to talk to my parents, actually. And I think that was a big problem as I was so afraid of what they would think. You know, there was a lot of expectation on being the oldest and the first girl and the first to go to college. And then, you know, what would happen if I lost all of that? I did talk to my boyfriend at the time, and he, you know, was on a track scholarship at college and, you know, very similar sort mm-hmm. of situation. And so we made that decision really quickly and on our own, just in a vacuum. And so I think when the whole idea of clarity, I very much can relate to because it felt like a very dark, very confusing few weeks or days. I don't even remember what the timeline was because it was yeah. so clouded. And I remember making that decision and thinking, going to make that and then I'm going to go on with my life and I'll bury that and no one has to know. And then I learned, well, it it wasn't quite that easy and it definitely was a hard decision. There were, um, a friend of mine got pregnant soon thereafter and so I saw her and she ended up having her child and so there was this reminder, you know, constantly of what would your life be like? And she went on and graduated and became a nurse and all the things, the reasons I thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this because what if I can? Yeah. I watched, you know, other people do. And I think there was this part of me that kept thinking, what if somebody had just said to me, 
I'll be there for you or I'll help you. you. We can do this together. Mm. Or if Pepperdine at the time, you couldn't live on campus. So what your friend, was she at a different school? She was. And did you think besides being at a different school that she had other things in play that helped support her so that she could navigate that? She did. I mean, she had a much different family dynamic situation. Her parents had fostered several children. And so I think her parents were just much more used to the, mm-hmm. you know, people have different, take Life different is paths. Messy. Life is messy. Yeah. Um, there wasn't as much maybe expectation put on her. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there was a, definitely a, a lot of that. But I guess the good news is that, you know, it was a, a short time when I realized, okay, I need to talk to somebody about this. And I actually wrote a paper at school. Um, I was in this class called Human Relations and Values. And the professor was like, you can write anything you've done and it's secret. And it's just like a process paper. It was, we laughed that the class was like a group therapy class, but nobody knew they were in therapy. And then you found out later, Karen, this is your first therapy. And so I decided to write it all out. And I remember- Yeah. I mean, that's genius to have us be able to write something safely and it be a secret. It was a life-changing class. And some people wrote about things and then they shared them and then others didn't. So mm-hmm. I think I dropped the paper off at you know the end of a day. And at 7.30 the next morning, I got a phone call from Dr. Banks. I'll never forget Dr. Jeff Banks. And he said, uh, meet me in my office this morning. I want to talk to you. And so I went over there and it was just like you were sitting in front of the most loving grandpa who just said, hey, I am so proud of you for sharing this and this does not define who you are. Mm -hmm. And he was the first person in this whole journey that really spoke this very hopeful future over me and said, so many other women have been here and you're not alone. And um, you will, I believe you will get married. I believe you will have children. And I must've written in there all all my fears. Did you you feel like, um, because I, I know that there, besides sadness and guilt, when someone has to go through something like that, do you do you, do you pile on like, oh, and then I will never, ha- someone won't love me, and then I won't be able to have like whatever we call a regular life. I don't even know what that means because yeah. we're older, so we yeah. know that that's like such silliness. But did you yeah. think you piled all that on on that one event? I did. I, there was a lot of, um, I think I I made the decision and then, felt relief for a moment and then immediately went, oh my gosh, why did I do this? And so my sort of coping was overachieving. Well, if I'm, I did this, so then I need to be the top of, I'm going to graduate, you know, magna cum laude. I'm going to be the best at this. And and meanwhile, my boyfriend at the time chose the complete opposite, drugs, alcohol, giving up, drop, he dropped out of school. I mean, it was just, the we track both athlete? went, yeah, we went completely different. And it was almost immediately, although nobody knew. So nobody really knew what was going Mm. on. Um, He became pretty abusive through it all. So both of us were trying to cope in ways. And I think a lot of it was, and I I didn't deserve, I don't deserve. So then I did graduate with, you know, honors and was like, I don't deserve that. Or Mm. I don't deserve to get married one day. I don't deserve to have children. I don't. So a lot of just self, um, just shame and self sort of loathing, um, and so I wrote the letter and then shared that with him. And I never forget, he said, you don't have to share this with anybody else, but there will be people in your life that I think you can trust. And so I tried it with another friend of mine and I, I couldn't say the words, but I gave him the paper and said, read this. And 
was like, oh my gosh. And he was the second person that just spoke a lot of hope over my life. And then eventually I found out about what is now Claris and that they had a support group were like a process group for other women and girls who had been through this. And at the time, I think I told myself I was probably the only one. Like, I'm the only one at Pepperdine. I'm the only one that grew up with the type of family that I had. I'm the only, you know, and I had yeah. done all these labels. I had given myself all these labels. And so I walk in. I remember I called and this woman said, I mean, she was so kind. And she just listened to me. And she said, do you want to come in and join our group? And it was this life-changing decision when it took so much courage, but I finally walked in there and I looked around. I thought, oh my gosh, there's other women. And they all have very, we all had very different stories, but we could, somebody would say something and you would say, I thought I was crazy for feeling that way. Or I thought I was the only one. And so it was so helpful and went through this 10-week group and then was going to graduate and thought, okay, that was great. Now I'm moving on with my life. And I was, my dad wanted me to be a lawyer. And I kind of just started down this career path. And the woman who was running Claris had her second baby and knew that she was not going to be returning. And for some crazy reason, she told someone, I think that that girl Talitha is supposed to be the next director. And Somebody ran into me and said that, and I laughed and was like, never, there is no way. I have all these student loans, and I'm never, never, never. And I don't even like women. <laughs> I don't right. even like girls. All my, the thought of sitting there and dealing with women every day, that sounds awful to me. <laughs> I have boy, I have brothers, and you know, I'm very you know, athletic, and I can talk about those things, but not this. So for about a year, I ran. Every time I'd see those women, Oh my gosh. And they never hired a director. So that whole time they couldn't find anyone. Finally, I remember um, this woman named Susan said, you know, have you actually really thought of this or do you just keep saying no without thinking about it? Mm. And she challenged me. And I kind of remember saying, oh my gosh, if I'm supposed to do this, then it's it better be abundantly clear. And the next day I got a call from Chuck Norris's family, the actor, yeah. Walker, Texas Ranger. They called and he, his I didn't wife, see that coming. I know, no one ever does. They, so Chuck's wife was having twins and my boyfriend at the time, it was loosely related or was related to her side of the family. And they said, we want somebody to help us at night with these babies. And my name was brought up, Talitha's amazing. She's been a nanny. She gets babies to sleep through the night really early. It's her thing. You should hire her. And so the only way I could work for them was if I quit my day job Mm -hmm. and took the job at Claris because at the time was part-time. So we were this tiny little organization with a $90,000 budget and we were open 20 hours a week. And, you know, I showed up on day one. So I, I look back and I think, I don't know what those women saw in me because I wasn't really sure I wanted to do it. I sort of came kicking and screaming. And then the the beautiful thing is what I ran from ended up becoming just the perfect calling. It's everything I would have ever dreamed that I could do with my life. And it was taking the thing I hated the most about my story and really sort of putting that on display, mm-hmm. which I would have never thought, and not being afraid of letting people see the brokenness, the pain, the hardship that I've been through. And then it allowed me to help build this model so that others know that they're never alone, regardless of what they choose. Um, That's not the defining moment in their life. It might be defining in that it can 
turn their life in a direction, right. but it's not their identity. It's not no. who they are. So when you say the $90,000 budget, what, what were they able to do or what were services were you guys providing? Well, first of all, the 10 week course, was that like once a week you would yes. meet? And did you have to write or do things? So maybe they were sort of checking you out, your homework out. I don't know. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, that's funny. Maybe, although the woman who led it um, was just, I think, a volunteer leader. So right. she, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> she clearly liked my answers. Whatever yeah. I was sharing, she was like, this girl, I'm going to watch her. So with, with 90, at, th- at that time, you know, what were you guys able, what was sort of, so 20 hours a week, what services or, and where were you located? Who was coming to you? Like, what, what did that look like then? Because this is like 2001, right? Yeah. Ish? Yeah. Or, yeah. May of, of 2001. So we were in this awful little strip mall above a Chinese restaurant. I'll never forget. It was terrible at about two o'clock every day. We could smell the Chinese food like coming up. The worst place to be for pregnant people to walk in. I mean, think about just the smells. But we we had this little center and we did counseling. So a lot of it was just counseling. Women could come and take a pregnancy test. So we would offer pregnancy tests at the time. Um, We weren't medical, so they would just take the test and they would sort of read it themselves. But then we would be there to counsel them. And then we offered parenting classes. We've always sort of offered material assistance. So if somebody chose to parent, we had diapers and wipes and formula and, you know, baby things to support them. And we did the support groups for post for anyone who'd gone through a termination. And then we were starting some adoption groups as well, because a lot of women who place a child for adoption have similar feelings of Mm. initial relief, but it can turn to regret and depression and sadness. And a lot of those is they too aren't raising their child. So there's a lot there, but it was mostly counseling and education focused. And after they hired me or immediately, I mean, I was 23. I had no clue what I was doing, but they said, we want to become a medical clinic. And Looking back, I think, you know, maybe what they saw in me was somebody who had lived experience, which we know now is pretty important, Mm -hmm. but also was just a sponge. So I just looked around and thought, I remember my first day I looked around that I would have never walked in here when I was pregnant because Mm -hmm. it didn't, it was dark. It was not very inviting. Um, And so we quickly decided we need to move and we want to become a licensed medical clinic. And that must have been, I mean, becoming a licensed medical clinic. I mean, how about trying to figure out how to navigate those logistics? In California. Yeah. 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 It was, it took about three years. Oh, three years. Well, let's, let's back up. So when you, cause see, I think sometimes I feel like I'm listening to this and you think, um, okay, counseling, when someone comes in and maybe they found out they're pregnant or, you know, we all would assume that they have someone to talk to, right? So maybe just share, because it's probably so common for you because you're into this. Yes. But I think from the outside, people don't realize all of that, what people have to go through sometimes in these experiences. Yes. Yeah. I mean, every situation is is unique, but most women would say, even if they have a lot of people in their life, they don't have a lot of people that have sort of an unbiased Mm -hmm. opinion in the situation. So 
a lot of times, you know, they might confide in somebody, but the person they confide in says, you should do this. Yeah. Or the person they confide in has sort of a vested interest in the outcome. You know, so sometimes it's, you know, I told my boyfriend and he really doesn't want me to have the baby. Um, sometimes it's just communication issues. So that's why we we really started looking beyond just her that's walking in. And we thought, okay, well, where is he? Can we talk to him too? Because what we've realized is sometimes she'll come in and say, he's really pressuring me and we'll talk to him. And he says, oh, I just want to, whatever she wants. I just, I thought I was being supportive by saying, well, I'll be there, whatever you choose, it's your choice. And then she says, well, then it feels like he abandons me. Mm. You know, so even just some simple communication dynamics saying, let's just have you share how you really feel. Or if all those voices in your head were silenced, what would you want to do? I mean, that's a powerful question that no, no one asks often is, you know, they'll come to us and they'll say, my mom says this, my dad says this, my school says this, my boyfriend says this, my other kids say this. And it's like, okay, just pause for a moment. What If all those voices were quiet, what do you want to do? And just letting somebody sit with that, mm. um, talking through pros and cons of each decision is huge. Some women really, I would say not more than some, a lot of women feel so trapped by their circumstances that they feel like they only have one choice. And so sitting down and making lists of, okay, how can we how could we help you if you want help? You know, is it housing? Is it legal assistance? Is it adoption education? You know, a lot of women come in and say, I can't do this or I don't want to terminate, but I don't think I can raise a baby. And, you know, you ask them, have you ever thought of adoption? And they'll say, well, I couldn't give my baby away. And then we unpack what does adoption really look like? Mm. What does open adoption look like nowadays? You know, adoption has changed so much in the last 20 years. And so just processing through that and then letting them know they're not alone, you know, and it's not one visit. Like we're there with people for months and years, years to come. I mean, I'm going to Texas this weekend and I'm going to see a former client of ours who her oldest is eight. So she's been in our network and has become a dear friend in over eight years mm -hmm. and has had more children. And these are a lot of our quote unquote clients or patients will say, you know, I came to Claris and then they became family. Right. And that's what it really is about. Well, and I think sometimes too, when you're talking about certain groups of people, maybe they're not, they're not getting um, the strongest support from home or maybe home is so overbearing that they don't, ha it's like a, the opposite. It's like, you know, that, well, you're supposed to behave a certain way and, you know, show up a certain way. And if it's different, then they feel that pressure, like you were saying about, you know, um, I'm not doing it the way I was supposed to be doing it or whatever that means. But just to actually get somebody to give you the skills to look at it differently, to have that opportunity to reframe it a little bit. I think that um, we could all use that all the time, never mind in the most vulnerable, one of the most vulnerable states of being pregnant or feeling like, am I keeping a child? Am I not keeping a child? I mean, this is a highly vulnerable state. But um, I think that communication part is something like we all, I, I don't I never understood why in school we learn so many different things and we don't learn about this type of thing. Like the most fundamental thing of either sexual education, mm -hmm. I don't know where that went, and then real communication. Like if someone's saying something to you that makes you uncomfortable or if you needed to approach these topics and it sounds like just even providing 
that space for them is pretty impactful. Because even when you said that, I think if for all of us who are friends to somebody or, you know, have someone to borrow that, because we could have friends come with us and without putting our filter on it, ask them, well, if it, it, it didn't matter what anyone thought or believed around you, what do you think you want? Mm-hmm. I think that simple thing for all of us, male or female, it's like, well, let me take a look at that. Because usually you can't get past all the other expectations. So when they come in, um, I'm, I'm just fascinated now. So the business has grown. And, and you did say, you mentioned legal. Mm-hmm. Like what kind of legal um, assistance would someone need in those in those positions? So some, some women are undocumented. So there okay. may be some yeah. legal assistance there. Sometimes it's domestic, a domestic yep. situation. We've seen several different, you know, it could be as simple as, if somebody comes in and they say, I have a re- an issue with a former landlord and I'm stuck, I have nowhere to live and I'm, you know, I just yeah. need somebody that can help read this lease for me, you know, things like that. Yeah. But, but a lot of immigration, domestic violence, custody, sometimes there's custody issues. Wait, what do you mean? On an unborn child? Or previous children. Okay, somebody so you guys, other ha- children. you have, you do that too? So if you, if someone had an existing situation? Um, so we we don't provide legal assistance, but we have a network. Direct them. Yeah, we have about 220 partners now that we work with in the city that specialize in all of these different things. And so for a long time, it was, this is what we do, and this is what they do, and this is what mm. they do. And what we realize, especially in a city like LA, there's such a disconnect. So you can hand someone a sheet of paper right. with 10 names on it, but then them navigating system and getting there. And so it's so much better to say, hey, our friend at this place, let me call them for you. Let's get the answers for you. And then we will get you there. Mm -hmm. And I mean, today we just in the last 24 hours, four of our partners all came together and we housed a woman and her child that had been on the street. And, you know, it was so neat to our staff just sat back today. We were celebrating like, oh my gosh, look at what we were able to do, but it wasn't us. It was us with these guys and these guys and this Mm. amazing foundation that provided funding for her to stay in a hotel for a few nights. You know, so I love seeing people come together. It also eases the burden and it helps people realize that there are great people in this city and in this world who want to help. So often you feel isolated and alone and no one cares. And so to walk into a place and say, we care, but it's not just us. There's all these other people in the city that care about you. You know, some things are never going to be different, like the importance of managing stress, trying to get the best sleep that we can, and just be as recovered as we can. So listen, we, we get stressed whether we're working out in the gym, even though it's good for us, it still creates a lot of stress, or we're at work. And these things all impact how we perform. And that's why I was really excited to share with you a new sponsor of the podcast, New Calm. I've talked about them before, and I've been using it now for over a month, probably, yeah, probably like five, six weeks. And I'm the person who never really gets good enough sleep. I have a disrupted, I track my sleeping, and a lot of times I'm up or I don't go into deep sleep or deep REM. And I've been using the new calm program to help me either manage my stress, just sort of give me that gap in the day. They've got several different programs, like three or four different ones. So if you only have 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 
maybe even if you have a longer period of time where you can go and really relax. Um, and some of them even talk about using this where you can go to places and it'll really help you with your jet lag. So what I love about this is it's the only stress management system of its kind. It's clinically proven in over 1 million sessions to improve your sleep, reduce your stress, and it'll boost your recovery without, and this is really important for me, drugs and side effects. Anytime I can use nature, you know, my own body or something like this, where I have my mask, I go ahead and I put the program I want in and I just, you know, do it very easily. It's so easy to use. Um, it uses cutting edge neuroscience. It consists of three non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical items, all of which are included in your monthly subscription that costs less than a daily cup of coffee. The whole process is really easy to use. You can, you know, work it into your daily routine because there's so many things that are great for us, but it's just nobody has the time uh, to help you achieve that better sleep, reduce the stress, and ultimately that will boost your recovery. So I'm really excited for you to check out Newcom. If you go to their website, not only do they have an amazing offer for you, but they'll give you all the information and science. I think that's important to understand what you're doing. And Newcom has all that. So do what I do. Own the day with Newcom. I mean, this has really helped me level out my energy and feel just more rejuvenated. Um, you'll hear people even talking about where if they have a creative job, it helps with that. And they've got a special link set up specifically for you guys. So if you go to Gabby newcom.com, you'll get 50% off your 30-day subscription of Newcom, and they've got a money-back guarantee. So put my name in front. That's Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y, newcom.com, and you'll get that savings. You'll try it. And remember, there is no risk to you because they've got that money-back guarantee. We have a great offer for you today from Whoop, which is the fitness wearable brand. I love it because it does so many complicated things and makes it really easy for you to understand not only the data, what you're seeing, but also how do you use that uh, into your day, everyday life. So if you'd like to give a Whoop present to someone this holiday or present to yourself, they have a wonderful offer for you. Uh, let's talk about what it does. For me, the number one is the sleep tracking. The Whoop is a best-in-class sleep tracker, so it'll tell you, you know, and not only track your sleep and how, tell you how in-depth it is, but it'll remind you like, hey, what times you should go to bed and it'll allow your body to recover to be at your best the next day. And that's really important, which leads us to, it'll track how recovered you are every day that you wake up. So you'll know exactly where you're at, how hard you can go in your training, or maybe you need to pull back because believe it or not, there's plenty of people that actually overtrain and that doesn't help us either. And it will also track how strenuous your day is and monitor the intensity of your workouts. So it'll provide you with like you could even set some goals with it, hit based on your recovery. So you can make sure to either push your body like we talked about or pull back that day. They said it's sort of like having a fitness trainer on your wrist every day. And they have a great offer for you. This, this product's really easy to use because first of all, it's comfortable and it looks great. It comes in great colors. Um, they have this really great new band, the Whoop Strap 3.0 comes, you know, it's waterproof. So you can wear it in the shower. You don't have to take it off. I like to slide it sometimes if I'm training, you know, they make it so easy where it looks good. It's stretchy. It's lightweight, comes in great colors. And if you head to whoop.com right now, W H 
H-O-O-P.com. They're going to give you 15% off at checkout. All you have to do is punch in the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y, and they're going to offer you the Whoopstrap 3.0 for free. And then you can get access to their app, which provides all this incredible insight so you can know yourself and perform at your best. And I think sometimes just wearing something like this is a cue. You know, it's just that reminder of like, hey, have I moved around enough today? Where am I at? So it's that constant check-in. And this product is so easy to use. It has a five-day battery. It's, you know, lightweight. It won't, you know, sort of interfere. It's just there to track the data, give you the data so you can use it. And so head to whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com. Creeps, cults, ghosts, guys named Jerry. This is your one-stop shop. If you like all that weird shit, join me. I'm Casey Balsham. I'm a comedian and I am fascinated by dark, twisty, and shady ass shit. On the Shady Shit Podcast, we're going to cover all the topics ranging from living in a haunted house to dating app scammers to Lizzie Borden and everything in between. Every Friday, I'm going to break down well-known and little-known stories that are sure to induce just a bit of discomfort. I am so looking forward to making your weeks just a little bit weirder. Do you have any like, um, you know, sister family programs in other states or do you have are there other groups like you that are that you know of that are out there? Yeah, there are some. We don't have any formal partnerships, mm-hmm. um, but they're like I have other CEO friends like there's one in New York that I know does amazing work. There's one in Atlanta and Austin, you know, so there's a few different places that we can refer to, but we're actually working right now on a digital, sort of a digital expansion. I mean, one of the good things that's come out of this hard season is realizing there's so much more that we could do virtually. And why haven't we been doing that? So maybe there's a way for us to provide some of those, you know, unique critical services digitally and then connect her to local resources. So that's a vision. So you're you're 19 years in, and this is, I'm sure, incredibly uh, satisfying and gratifying. But it's also this is hard work. What you're doing. I mean, these are people's lives, their emotions. You're raising money privately because that you're not a government agency. What skill set? And maybe this is what they saw in you. But what what do you think? What skill sets do you have that keep you sort of you know, you're fighting the good fight every day and the people you work with. You're all fighting a, a real fight. I think a lot of people sometimes they get overwhelmed, like, oh, the system is broken and all these other things. How do you, you know, what's your self-talk or your tools that help you sort of say, yeah, okay, I'm ready to go. Here we go, you know, the next day. That's such That is such a good question. It's hard to talk skills because... I feel on a daily basis like I'm probably the most unqualified CEO. Like I'm probably the one that doesn't belong in the room, but somehow snuck in. Like that's kind of how I I get through each day. But maybe in that is this feeling of always learning, never feeling like I arrived. Looking back at, you know, some of the things that we've done so well and some of the things that we haven't and, and looking constantly looking at the needs in the city and really listening. I think I'm never too far removed from those that we serve. So that's a huge thing for me is I don't want to be the type of CEO that says, well, I I was where you are. 
decades ago, but now I'm here. No, I'm still learning and I'm still learning by being in relationship with those that we're serving. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also a doula. So there's opportunities where- When did you have time to become a doula? Um, <laughs> I, so I actually did it at the same time. So I started working for the Norrises. I started at Claris and then I went through labor with a friend and a nurse at the hospital said, you should be a doula. Your voice is so calming. And you were really great. This was a crazy birth and you brought so much peace to it. And so I looked up Google. I was, I think I Googled doula. Whoa. It means. Did you spell it right? Probably not. (laughs) No, I had to ask her five times. What, what is this? And so, but sure, why not? So I trained to be a labor doula. And then when I worked for the Norris's, I got their babies were preemie. So I got all this experience with Uh preemies and then realized I should do the postpartum doula thing too. So I've kind of always done both. Wait, what's postpartum? Um, Tell, break that down for me. Postpartum doula is you're there after somebody comes home with a baby. And my specialty has always been like sleep training. And so I do nights. So I'll go in. And so for the last, like last night, I was with a seven-week-old. Tonight, I'm with a six-week-old. And I've been with them for, you know, since they were born. And they're both almost sleeping through the night. So okay, I'm let's done. And let, <laughs> all right, let's let's back that up. Okay, I have a running joke that like I'll meet people and they'll be like, "Do you know I'm the wealthiest person in the world?" And I'll be like, "I am so happy for you." Do you know that I'm the smartest person? I'm like amazing. I'm the most beautiful. I'm I'm ecstatic for you. And they when I have my daughters, they be like, "My baby sleeps through the night," and I would be like, "You know what? Just keep that to yourself." Yeah. you know what I mean. <laughs> like it was the only thing that I was like, "What do you mean your baby sleeps through the night?" And you would be just you know, appalled at my (laughs) technique of like, oh, you want the boob now? Here you go. Um, You are sleep training. How, what are your, you know, what's your techniques? with secrets. Yeah. Well, it's also like getting the baby not, and away from the mom a little bit because you can, Mm -hmm. they can smell the mom and then it's like game on. Exactly. So what, tell me how you do that. Oh, so I have these little tips to just sort of help the baby know the difference between day and night. And so I, yeah, I tried I the, really, like, I, I read that book. Wow. Okay. Good to know. I, uh, well, so when I work with a family, I always ask them sort of, what is your goal? Like, are, is the baby joining your world or are you joining the baby's world? Yeah. Cause that baby will take you on a wild ride that might last 18 years, you know, if you really, yeah. or it might last, you know, 30 something, yeah, mm-hmm. 30 something. They still might not be sleeping, yeah. you know? So I, um, it's really about packing in their food during the day. And so I do this whole thing where, you know, good full feedings mm-hmm. and then time in between feedings. And so once you, you know, establishing good breastfeeding and then- So they're full and they don't wake up because they're hungry. They're getting a good, you know, in the beginning, seven to eight feedings in 24 hours. And then you get, you know, six to seven in about 12 hours and then they don't need to eat overnight. But it's also the big key is self-soothing, them learning how to put themselves to sleep. So ideally, I start from the very beginning. And so you feed the baby, you change their diaper after they eat, so Mm -hmm. it kind of wakes them up. And then you see tired cues, you swaddle and you put them down and you let them learn to kind of put themselves. So if they start fussing, you go over, I'm here, you pat pat them, you turn on the sound machine, you Mm -hmm. give them silk blankie so they know silk sound swaddle sleep you know and then you just gent I just sort of gently teach them that and I've learned that if they learn that skill during the day you kind of avoid the brutal 
sleep training of, you know, when mom's finally like, I can't do this anymore and I have to let them cry or what do I do? So that's the preferred method. It doesn't always work that way. You know, some babies, you know, have special, you know, they need to eat or they're really colicky or they have reflux. You know, there's always those. So sometimes we delay that, but there's still things you can do. And you have two children. And I'm just curious, were you successful at doing this with your own children? You know, I actually was. That's amazing. Because usually know. we can do so many things really well for other people, and we just are terrible. I know. I I wondered about that because people were like, "Just wait till, just wait till she has a baby, and then yeah. we'll see." But no, the both of them slept. One of them accidentally slept through the night really early because the battery and the monitor died or something, and I woke up and was like, oh, "She slept through the night," and then I was like, "Oh, apparently she can sleep through the night." So. Here we go. But the other one, yeah, it worked for both. They were great. Where I tap out is when they are out of a crib. And then I'm like, I don't know what to do now. When they come in your room in the middle of the night and they get so good, it just, you wake up and they're next to you. And you're like, where did you come from? And how did you get here? And at that point, I have to hire somebody apparently to tell you, get my eight-year-old out of my bed now. (laughs) I know. It's funny. I go back and forth though, because I go like, oh, you know, they shouldn't. And then you realize like, they're going to move on. And it's a, like, a, it's a, it's a, it's sort of like this bittersweet, annoying and beautiful simultaneous yes. thing that they're not going to move back into. Mm-hmm. I always think once kids start going through puberty, they're out. Yes. They want privacy. They're in their own space. Yeah. They're, it's just like, that's what they're doing. So sometimes when I get yeah. into that, I'm like, this is a sweet moment that's never going to happen. Yes. And yes, it's disrupting my sleep, but it'll be something I can look back on. Yeah. I don't know. I just, but we'll see. But my, n- none of my uh, babies. So you you help baby sleep train, which I think is amazing. Does the crying of your own children, did that impact you differently than like when you're working with someone else's baby? Definitely. Oh, yeah. And I should, you know, I don't believe in like rigid scheduling and it's all about you working with your baby. But yeah. there are sometimes when you know, like you're tired and you need to go to sleep and you just need to, you know, do this. And I remember once my oldest was, I don't know, maybe six weeks. And I remember my husband told me, go take a lap around the block because I would say that to some moms, like, oh, go take a little walk because it's so hard when it's your own baby. And he was like, you need to go take a walk. And I thought, you're right. They have this rope around your heart in a way that, you know, other babies don't because you didn't know, you know, they're not. You're not raising those. No. And it's interesting too. And it conversely, it works where when you're in a crowded place or like a airplane, when other people's babies cry, it doesn't bother me. I only feel empathy. When my baby would cry, I'd start to like feel a little bit of like a body heat because I'm like, oh no, someone's going to get agitated. So it's funny how it works on all the sides when you have your kids. Now you adopted, uh, how old was your daughter when you adopted her? Yes. My, excuse me. I just took it. I, I give Talitha something to drink and then she can't talk anymore. <laughs> it's really good. It's yeah. worth it. <laughs> worth it. Um, so our youngest is eight mm-hmm. and she was adopted at birth. So but, I was her birth mom's doula. I got to be there. Now, was this somebody who came in to Claris or something? Like, what was the scenario? Yeah, good, good question. No, um, a friend of mine is an adoption attorney. Mm -hmm. And she would often counsel women who were interested in adoption. So she came to Clarice one day to meet with a young birth mom. And on her way out, she said, 
you know, there's this birth mom in San Diego and I got a call about her and she's looking for a family. And she described the family that she was looking for. And she said, you know, she said, no, anyone wink, wink. And then on her way out, she said, you know, my husband had told her, stop telling Talitha about all these babies. Cause every time you tell her about a baby, she wants, you know, she wants the baby. And, um, so I went home and um, told him about the baby and yeah. said, "And your other your biological daughter was four or five or something she like was that." Four, okay. She was four and um, said, "You know, there's this situation, and I really feel like and everything to the point where the birth mom was from Oklahoma. She um, worked in the same industry as my husband worked. Um, she." had a huge family. She wanted a family that was biracial. I mean, she had all these criteria and we met every single one of them, which was pretty incredible. So we talked about it and within about three weeks or so, we ended up meeting her at Ruby's Diner in Oceanside. Good old Ruby, (laughs) some black and white flooring and you're good to go. Pouring rain, never rains in California. It was like a monsoon. And, you know, we're sitting and it's the, you know, honestly, it was the the most awkward thing I think I've ever done in my life because you're sitting across from this young woman and it almost feels like you're on a first date, but you're going to get married. You know, you're on this first date that will decide if you guys are getting married and you're getting married in eight weeks, by the way, because your baby's due in eight weeks. And But just fell in love with her immediately. She, yeah, was just incredible. She was 26 Mm. at the time and... So, or was she 26 or maybe she's 24? Maybe she's 24 at that time. And just described why she was considering adoption. And, you know, her story, she had considered, I think when she was, when she was first pregnant, had considered not continuing the pregnancy. And mm-hmm. her brother actually talked to her and said, I feel like if you make that decision, you might really regret that. Have you ever heard of adoption and open adoption? His friends had just adopted. And so he made the call for her and he found, and this is where just the power of having a supportive person that mm-hmm. can hold your hand. And sometimes that means you have to actually make calls for people and you have to actually do yeah. some of the legwork because they just can't in that moment. It's hard. It's really hard. It's hard. It's hard and you feel so trapped. And so so he did all the, I think, initial you know, calls and then she searched, she connected with a facilitator and searched for a family. And I remember she said, you know, every family that she would present to us was not at all what I had asked for. And she had got to the point where she was about to give up. And she said, well, maybe this is a sign. Maybe I'm supposed to just raise this baby. And then she was connected to us. And so she says she knew pretty immediately. And the the father was in the picture, but was pretty supportive of the adoption, I think, from the beginning. So our story, what's neat is we have a relationship with both of them, which isn't always the case. Really? And yeah. Are they in a relationship? They're not, but they separately. So how does that work if if you have an open adoption? Because, you know, it's like, you know, you're the parents and how are they presented as, as what to your daughter? So they're her, she knows them as her birth parents. She okay. knows them by their names. So she doesn't say my birth mom. She'll say Becky. Yeah. You know, she knows her. Um, and she, so every open adoption is is unique. But what what's really sweet about it is the birth mom, in a sense, gets to 
choose the type of relationship she wants. And in best case scenario, the family adopting should honor that. And um, they should agree on all that before the baby's born. And then really it's the adoptive parent's responsibility to make sure that happens. The court system is not so great about this. You can file a contact agreement, Mm -hmm. but they're not very enforceable right now. So I think there needs to be some change. So before she had the baby, she knew she wanted to be in the baby's life. We had done a bunch of research, and there's a lot of research showing that children that grow up in open adoption situations grow up much, have a much healthier view of adoption because mm-hmm. if it's closed, they often have this fantasy of who their real family is. And yeah. they're, you know, I'm stuck with you people, but really, <laughs> I have this amazing family out there. And, <laughs> and she's not even a teenager yet. No, so, you know, <laughs> no, they're like four years old and they're like, I have this great family. So, um, so we knew that and really wanted that. And I think, you know, looking back, I, it's such a blessing to see how our relationship has grown. And we are, we were the perfect match because I was not at all afraid of her and of that relationship. But I think all the years of working with women like her um, gave me so much. You know, I had been doulas before for young women who placed for adoption. And it was so hard for me to watch her hand the baby. And I was like, we can't do this. You can't can't give them your baby. You don't even know these people. You know, so I had all my Mm. own thoughts. And then when it was my turn and the baby was being handed to me and knowing the pain, knowing what the car ride from Cedars was going to be like for her as she pulled away, knowing that I needed to let her leave first so she wouldn't see us leave with her baby at the time. You know, all of that, just those painful emotions. I had been on the other side in, in a way that allowed me to really empathize. And so but it's this, you know, you're, again, you're still dating some, you married somebody that you hardly know. And yeah. do you trust, you know, she wanted to see her at two weeks. She sent me a text and said, can we see her? And our adoption hadn't finalized. It wasn't finalizing until day 30. And I remember thinking, this could be the last time we see her. We could drive down there and she could say, I changed my mind. And now if she were sitting here, she would say to you, it in a way was an exercise of trust for her because I think had I not shown up, she would have thought these people aren't going to hold their end of the bargain. They don't really want me to be in, in Addie. Her name's Adeline in Addie's life. So we have this really sweet relationship now. Um, She lives about an hour away. We see her probably every six to eight weeks. Um, Addie has a great relationship with her. She adores her. I mean, she's kind of like the fun auntie in her life. Yeah, I bet. Now she really loves, loves her. And Becky has been so amazing at loving my biological daughter as well. So she's so great at, you know, she comes, she brings gifts for Riley and Addie Mm -hmm. and she, you know, loves both of them, obviously. Addie has her heart in a special way, but she's so great. And her family, we have a relationship with her parents and her siblings. And so, you know, she has, I always tell her you have three grandparents, three sets of grandparents, you know, so she has, and we, we talk about it in a way that it's a special thing, you yeah. know, it's a good special thing. And cause she, there was, it was hard around five. She I was going to say, how do you, what, at what age do you kind of start to have this, whatever age appropriate, whatever they can understand conversation? Cause they're seeing their special aunt, Becky. But so then when does it sort of become like, Hey, you know, is it, is it five? Is it four? I don't know. 
How does that yeah, look? Yeah, they were hard. I mean, it was really hard when she was two because, you know, two-year-olds don't like anyone except <laughs> their mom. And so I think it was hard mm. for her to not take that personal. Like, does she Ooh, not hard, yeah. like me? Um, so that was a hard age. And then it started getting really sweet. Um, we we told her her story. We were advised, tell Riley the birth story the way you want it told because Riley will always tell it to her because they're four and a half years apart. Yeah. And mm. it's true. So, you know, and and Riley would tell it in the ways you don't want it told. I mean, there were times where she's like, you you weren't in mom's belly. You were in somebody else's belly. And you're like, oh. Yeah. Or she would say things like, you know, daddy's not really your dad. You have another dad. And, you know. My <laughs> kids are biologically related and they still do that to each other. So it's... <laughs> Yeah, everything that you would expect, oh. it just gives a whole different story. Or I remember we went to, you know, adoption. There's a there's a hearing when it's finalized. And so we went and she was 11 months old. And we go to court and we all have to raise our right hand and swear that we will raise her as if she's, you know, a naturally born daughter and blah, blah, blah. And the next day I'm taking my daughter to first grade and she says, well, how come you didn't go to court for me? You know, why didn't I get a party? And why didn't I get, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, because you were in my belly, because you have yeah. that, you know, you, you were nursed. She's like, I don't exactly. Yeah, she's like, I save your belly you. and everything. I, I want the parties and I want the extra yeah. grandparents. Yes, exactly. Isn't so. it funny how even within that is always the, 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 then the challenges or the delicacies of that dynamic? With your, with your older daughter. So it's funny, I have a stepdaughter, my oldest daughter. I met um, my husband when she was four months old. And, um, you know, we sort of physically looked enough alike growing up that I used to say to her, hey, is it okay if I don't introduce you as my stepdaughter? I honor your mom. I'm not replacing your mom, but it just feels more comfortable. But I asked her permission and she said, you know, she was comfortable because it felt, I don't know, felt strange. And, you know, saying, oh, here's my stepdaughter. And she was the only kid for eight years. But I always joke that there's things about her that get on my nerves less than my own biological children because there's things about myself that are in my kids that you just go, oh yeah, there, there's that that, that trait, you know? So it's just, it, I think that, and I was raised for five years by people that were not my parents. And the funny thing is, is that um, the woman, my Aunt Norette, was five feet tall and overweight, like pretty overweight. And like, she would take me shopping um, they couldn't afford much. He worked at sanitation department, whatever. She'd take me like Sears or something, right? But she always would dress me like how she thought you would dress if you were tall and skinny. Oh my gosh. So here I was at seven years old, five feet tall. Okay. I was a big kid. It was yeah. it was weird, whatever. <laughs> and people and she's a New Yorker and people will come up and they go, Oh, is that your daughter? And she's like, What do you think? You know? But the thing is, is that she loved me. Yeah. And so we could handle that humor and we could handle all the delicacies because and I think that's so important, whether you're a step-parent or you're adopting or you're a, a mentor or anything. It's like that giving of that love is is so powerful. And, yeah. you know, and I, I redirect that back to what you're doing at, at, at Claris because it's having those conversations. It's providing that space for people who need it. I also want to really talk about how, and I don't know with COVID if it's still happening, but your mobile clinic, maybe share about the mobile clinic um, because this is, you know, we forget, people forget sometimes that medical care or authority is scary for a lot of people. And they they either 
can't afford it or they're scared and they're not trusting the people that are there who's supposedly there to help them. And so one of the things you created was this this mobile unit to sort of go to the people. Are you still able to use the mobile yeah, unit? Yeah, definitely. And it's such a great idea, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it, it, it's, it was kind of a fascinating thing how it evolved, but we, so we have a clinic in West LA and then in South LA. So we, in 2009, we branched out into South LA and started seeing all the needs and really realized, you know, just it's this holistic care that's so important, the, you know, physical, emotional care. And then realizing, you know, the needs are so much bigger and we need to figure out how to help people find us. So years ago, we were like, we're the people would say, you're the best kept secret. And we kept saying, okay, that has to, that has to end. We can't continue yeah. to be the best kept secret. And so we did all these efforts. But what we realized in forming partnerships is there are so many people in this city who will never get to us. And yeah. and they can't either. If, forget if they really can't. want to. It's like they don't have the mobility to yes. get there. They don't. And it's either either there's a lack of transportation or there's a high mistrust. A lot of communities have yeah. a high mistrust of the medical community for good reason. Um, and, you know, we were out, we have a sexual health education program. So we'd be out teaching and we were teaching our parenting classes. So we do court mandated parenting and we've been teaching at reentry homes and all these rehab centers, but realized every time we were somewhere, gosh, there's so there's immediate need right now. And we can't even get people necessarily back to our own clinic. And mm -hmm. so what happened was a housing project in Compton said, can you bring medical services here? But we really need general health screenings as well. You know, some of the women might be pregnant and they might be your target audience, but we also just have people that have not been to the doctor in years and nobody will come here. And so part mm -hmm. of my, I would say, Clarissa's superpower is probably flexibility. My superpower is if there's a problem, I will fix it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, oh, there's a need, there's a problem. Okay, we need to figure out how to solve that. And so when they asked us for that, we started going into this housing community in Compton and then one in Watts. And then out of that, we realized we need to do so much more, but you can only do so much with a card table and a right. screen. And so we did a feasibility study and said, okay, how many of these partners, if we had a mobile unit that could be private um, and we would make it very clearest way, which is it would be beautiful, it, we would care for their emotional and their physical, we would you know, do all these things. And so 40, we got 40 responses immediately that said, yes, we would want you. So we built this 30 foot vehicle that is beautiful and it has a waiting room and like a coffee station. And so really walking in and we've thought of you, especially because we're going into a lot of, you know, homeless service provider areas, or we go to Skid Row and we go to housing communities and, and then there's a medical exam room in the back. Mm. And then we even go out onto the street. So we launched in October of 2019 and then COVID hit in March. And so we had these incredible first few months mm -hmm. and then the world shut down. And within one week, we decided, okay, medical services, maybe we should pause for a moment and figure out what that looks like. But immediately we realized all these communities don't have food. They don't have diapers. They don't have wipes. Mm -hmm. They are completely abandoned. It's almost privileged to be able to quarantine because there's this assumption that you can have everything you need yeah. and you can order it on Amazon or on Instacart or whatever. And there are all these communities that that does not apply, or even distance learning. 
that's great if you have Wi-Fi and yeah. you have a quiet home and you have, but these families don't have that. So we immediately, that, within that same spirit of going to where the need is, we said, well, we have a 30-foot vehicle now. We can fill it. So we started filling it with food. Mm. Started filling it with diapers. We, and in the early days, we just had people donate money and we went to Costco and we bought it all ourselves and yeah. then we would drive it. And then we found a, a partnership with the USDA group that does works with farmers. And so we were getting food from farmers and we worked with the Dream Center and other organizations. And we just said, hey, use our vehicle. We'll provide the driver and then we'll just go. And so we've been doing that. So And then we we went back to adding medical services a couple months ago, but realized there's still such a huge need for all of these other things. So mm-hmm. now we're just doing it all for as long as it's it needed. takes. Yeah. Um, and we'll just keep bringing food where we can. We're doing a big um, holiday party in Compton. We started a basketball camp for the kids there. We, not with Claris, I on my own started a learning center for kids in um, Inglewood with the Salvation Army where we just said, hey, I don't know how many kids, but we'll just find a way to have some teachers and then provide a space for them. So we have two learning centers now um, and about 20 something kids that come every day and um, are provided with a computer and with, you know, Wi-Fi and a mentor to sort of help them. Cause yeah. a lot of their parents don't, many of them don't speak English yeah. or they have other children and they don't, they don't know what the kids are learning and it's very difficult. So that's all been happening recently. Do you sleep? Um, sometimes I sleep. <laughs> sometimes I sleep. Yes. I sleep in little. I'm like a the baby that you don't want. I'm the baby that only sleeps a few hours at a time. Now, if people, you go based only on donations, like how does it work? And how can people support Claris and get involved? Um, I would imagine it would be best just to donate you know, money or needed items, but how can, how can they do that? Yeah, you can, the easiest um, thing to do is go to our website, which is just clarishealth.org. And there's lots of, you know, opportunities there, but I mean, donations are always appreciated and we are privately funding. So funded, so we do raise all of our money, but the most important thing to me is getting involved personally. So I would say if, if there's anything that I've shared where somebody says, oh my gosh, I want to do that or I want to be a part of that. Yeah. We do have this basketball camp was because somebody came to us and said, I grew up in Oakland and had a single mom and I'm really feeling like I want to give back. And all I know how to do is I run companies or and coach basketball. Can I coach basketball? And so we just provided that. So that was something where someone came to us and said, I have an idea and we helped or the food distributions, being there. Mm. So many people have joined us and said it's incredible for them to hand out food and you get to go to a community that's not that far from your own. I would say if you have children and you want your children to be exposed, I love taking my kids and I have my kids handing out diapers and playing basketball with the other kids and just so they're exposed and they realize, you know, it's a 15 to 20 minute drive. Mm. And, you know, there are kids that live much differently than you do and we are called to help and serve and, but also that they're not that much different than you, which is a big thing. I want my kids to always know Yeah, is that, you know, we're, we're all the same and we all have the same needs. It just might look differently. You know, the yeah. need might be different, but this, what's behind the need is, 
you want to be loved and you want to be cared for and you want to know that you're not alone and you want to know that somebody sees you and hears you. And so helping, helping them learn that. Well, I, um, are your parents alive? Mm-hmm. They must be hugely proud of you. Is your, your dad, I mean, come on. Yeah. The lawyer I, thing. I mean, come on. <laughs> the lawyer. I think my dad still wishes I had become a lawyer. He's been trying to make one of my brothers go that route now. But <laughs> he, he deferred that. He tried out of four of us and none of us actually went that way. But no, I think they are very proud and it's been helpful for them. They don't live here, but when they, we just had our virtual gala and they got to watch the gala mm. and my 93 year old grandma got to watch too. And I think for them to see, to see the work and how much it's grown and where yeah. we are is, yeah, incredibly exciting. So if, if someone was listening to this and, and we've obviously directed them on how they can support and help, but maybe if someone's listening and they're kind of going through their own version of a whatever, if it's a challenge, let's say, whether it's an unexpected pregnancy or maybe they terminated a pregnancy or they have a young child or they're just managing that, um, what are the maybe just the simple first steps for somebody who's looking for help but doesn't know how to get help? Mm-hmm. I mean, practically speaking, I think if you're listening, I'm really easy to find. And I would say I'm happy to be that first person to talk to. I think for a lot of women, just reaching out is the hardest part. Picking up the phone or it could be an Instagram message. I mean, you can find me on Instagram. I'm, I think I'm Talitha J. And just knowing that it's it's okay. You're not alone. There is going to be a friendly voice or text or response. I think that's the first step. Um, Claris is available. We can meet with you virtually. If you're not in LA, we can connect you to some a, a local place that can help you. And we'll do the research and make sure that it's a good place that can help mm-hmm. you. I think that's a, a huge thing. And I, you know, I think if somebody comes to you, I think like you said in the beginning, just pausing and I think people need to know in our society too, communication is fast and it's often not very personal. And so I think just pausing and really allowing somebody to talk and just listening, we've lost the art of listening in a way and just reflecting back and, and then being that person that says, I'll make the call. I'll do the, you know, a lot of times when you're in a hard situation, you just don't know what the first thing is to do. And so if you're, if somebody comes to you, you can reach out to us or you, I mean, I do a lot of coaching for people that say my daughter just found out she's pregnant or Mm -hmm. my friend. And how do I love her through this without, you know, the, the topics we deal with are so polarizing and there's, and they don't have to be, right. I think they shouldn't be. Um, we should be linking arms across lots of aisles and saying, we just need to help people through this. And what happens then is they do turn around and they help others. And I think that, you know, so many people, there's so many success stories, but I think you feel like this is a permanent moment, but it's really just a moment. Yeah. And to know, to paint, I always say, we paint hopeful futures that people just can't see yet Mm. for themselves, you know, but but it's there, it's over that horizon. And so maybe you're supposed to be the person that does that for someone else. Right. And don't just paint it, but then say, I'll be here with you, help you to yeah. help you. And I think you could say that about so many things in life in general, you know, that 
that hopeful future. Um, wait, what was his name? Jeff Banks? What was it? Yes, Dr. Banks. Way to go, Dr. Yes. Banks. Okay, Talitha Phillips. And so for anyone who wants more information, you go to clarishealth.org. And um, we'll put all, all of the links up. And, and um, I appreciate your time, but I, I so deeply appreciate the work that you guys are doing. And um, I find it really inspiring. So thank you. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.